0: you came um, before 9.30 this morning, there was coffee, and if you didn't, you missed out. But coffee is big business, isn't it? Coffee has changed our world. Just thinking, in the approximate centre of Oxford, if you want a good cup of coffee, you have a choice of the following in alphabetical order. You have the Ashmolean Café, you have Café Nero, Café Nero and Café Nero. You have CombiBos. You have Costa Coffee, Costa Coffee and Costa Coffee. You have Debenhams Cafe. You have Georgina's Coffee Shop in the covered market. You have Java and Company. You have QL and Queensland Coffee House. You have, I think, Starbucks, Starbucks, Starbucks and Starbucks, if you look carefully. You have The Missing Bean, which is very good. You have Zappy's Bike Cafe, if that's your thing. Not to mention just fast food chain outlets that seem to serve much better coffee than they did a few years ago. Here, we've just started um, serving filter coffee after our time together, as well as, as Peter says, the instant option if you prefer that. Coffee culture has changed our world. Just rewind five years and you'll see that. But how did that happen? It's striking, isn't it? How did we get from people really who only drank instant coffee or once in a while perhaps had cafetiere coffee to there being a cafe or two on every corner? Well, the marketing studies will show, if you track it back, it was through three particular coffee houses in America. It was Starbucks, it was Costa and it was Nero and they aggressively opened up little cafes in every community Perhaps at first they took the hitch, they made a loss, but slowly but surely over time they changed the culture. People saw it, people heard about it, people tried it, people told friends, and it grew and it grew and it grew and it spread, it created a demand, it changed a culture, it changed the world through coffee. The secret gets out and it spreads and it spreads, which in one sense is what Paul is envisaging as he talks about the local church. Little churches in different communities, united around the gospel, bit by bit by bit, changing the world, making an impact. And coffee is good, but the gospel of Jesus is so much better. Little communities of reconciliation changing the world. We've seen that in weeks gone by, that the gospel transforms lives. It takes us from being dead in transgressions and sins, people to being made alive in Christ people. So that his death is our death. The forgiveness he won is for us. His resurrection is ours because we're joined to him, because we are in Christ. And as Pete was saying to the children, that is true for us together. The gospel of Jesus doesn't just deal with me and my sin and my relationship with God. No, no, we're part of a family. We're a new body. We are reconciled. In the gospel, he reunites what was blown apart. He deals with the war between us and God, but between us and us as well. And so when we reach chapter 3, again this week we're looking at the entire chapter. I think it's helpful at times to look at a slightly bigger picture to see kind of where it's all going, but I think we'll see in chapter 3, it's a key passage. It's key because it divides the book in two, so pretty much from 3 verse 1 onwards, from here on in, Paul tells us what it means to live as a prisoner of Christ for the sake of others, what it means to suffer for the gospel, for the sake of his people. So it it divides Ephesians in two in lots of ways, but it divides the history of the world in two as well. So we're going to initially circle over the chapter to get our bearings, and then we will zoom in um, to two points. So have a look with me. 1 to around about 11, Paul describes his story. And then he looks back and he outlines that the mystery of the church that past generations longed to know this is something new, he says. So verse 4 and 5, he, he says that you are my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed. Or verse 9, this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God. And so he speaks of the privilege that he has of bringing this message now. Because it was a message they were waiting for. It was unknown then. It was kept hidden. Previous generations didn't know it. It was a message the world was waiting for. But this side of the cross, with the people in Christ, the mystery is revealed. And then he looks ahead because he says this this mystery that is out, this secret that is out there, is so important. Everything changes that this local church is at the very centre of God's plans for his world. And so, round about 12 to 21, the task of the church, so that future generations will know. He says, this is what the church does, this is why it's important, and so I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray that you fulfil the task that God has for you, that you might know more of, of his power at work in you, that you might grasp the love that Christ has. A truth that turned Paul around, changed him. Oh, that it might be a truth that turns our lives around, changes us. So first point, verse 1 to 11. The mystery of the church that past generations longed to know. So these are verses about a mystery. Have a look again, verse 3. He says, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it's now been revealed. By the Spirit, to God's holy apostles and prophets, this mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together. Or verse 9. And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. And when you see the word mystery, think open secret. Something that was once unknown, that is now known. It's been revealed, a truth that we know. So it's the end of Scooby-Doo. The handcuffs are on, the mask is off, and now everyone sees the truth. The mystery is solved. Well, so God the Father's plan of salvation in Jesus, of of reconciliation of all kinds of people, is something that's now out there. It's open. That's why Paul is writing from prison. Do you see that in 3 verse 1? That's how the chapter starts. Verse 1, for this reason, and we say what reason. Look back at chapter 2. Do you remember last week the church is the place where the dividing wall of hostility has been removed? Where a diverse people have been united together? Where Jesus did away with the law and reconciled all of humanity? And so the climax was there at the end of chapter 2. Verse 21, in him... In Jesus, the whole building, Jew and Gentile, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. For this reason, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And it looks like, after verse 1, he was going to pray for them. So actually, if you've got our church Bibles, you can see that they've set it out quite nicely there. It looks like he was going to go from 3 verse 1 to the prayer in verse 14, but he kind of backs up and overflows with more and more praise about God's glorious plan. And so 2 to 13 isn't a tangent. It's not Paul losing his train of thought. It's just praise bubbling out of him. You remember this plan that God has, this plan of which I bring to you. It's astounding. This mystery that was once hidden is now open. This is my message, says Paul. A message for them, from God, via Paul. So verse 2, it was given to me for you. Verse 3, it was made known to me by revelation. Verse 7, he is a servant of the gospel. Verse 8, although I'm less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles. This is God's message for them via Paul. And so he's speaking of his Damascus Road experience, his conversion, of God turning him upside down. One whose life was about destroying the church transforms to one whose life is about building the church. God can change people. Don't ever give up praying or speaking of Christ to your friends. Because he can work extraordinarily. Which is what he did in Paul. No longer is his life about church destruction. It's about church building. And he does that through a message. And this message is this mystery that is no longer a mystery. And what is it? It's there in verse 6. Do you see, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. The Gentiles, non-Jews, are together with Israel, heirs, members, sharers, where there was hostility, where there was division. Now there's reconciliation. Reconciliation. Look, no, no room for ambiguity, no room for boasting. He's hitting it home together, together, together. And to be heirs together, verse 6. Well, back at the start of the Bible in Genesis 12, God promises to a man called Abraham that he would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. Abraham. And now we see it's not just that Abraham's family would bless all the families of the earth, but rather that they might be included into Abraham's family. That they might become heirs, counted as his children. Members together. Pete was teaching the children. He's describing the way in which we are part of the same body now. So back in 2 verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one New humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which He put to death their hostility. And the scholars tell me that Paul makes up a new word here for us to understand this. This fact that the Gentiles are on equal footing, that they are members together (coughs) with God's people. And then they're sharers. Again, verse 6. Heirs, members, sharers. Some say this sharers in the promise is the climax. This is where it's all going. And the promise word there, sharers in the promise, is a loaded word in Ephesians. If you track it back over previous weeks, you'll see times when the Gentiles were excluded But now they share in the promise they've been brought in. So we saw it last time, they were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, separate, excluded foreigners. Now they are sharers in that promise together. But we saw it back in week one as well. Do you remember as he talked about the Holy Spirit from verse um, 14, 13 and 14? It's literally the Holy Spirit of promise with whom they were sealed. So I'm taking it, he's saying the Gentiles now have the Holy Spirit. It signifies God's pleasure, God's ownership of them, God's presence with them. They are included, (coughs) full sharers, equal footing. They have everything. They are a part of the people. a Christian from whatever background, whatever baggage, when they trust in him, they are given God's Holy Spirit and included to his people. And this idea of a mixed church, a diverse church, as you read the Bible, well, you see that Paul encountered opposition for this kind of thing, A mixed church of people from different backgrounds, Jews, Gentiles, together, was a stumbling block for many. Particularly as the story unfolds in Acts, where we're looking in our evenings. But what's striking here is a mixed church of people from different backgrounds provokes not opposition, (coughs) in our passage here, it provokes awe. Do you see that? A united church full of diverse people, where there's no longer war, where peace reigns, proclaims the power of the gospel... And we've looked at this previously, but verse 10, God's intent was that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. It's striking, isn't it, the church, which at times is mocked, it looks foolish and weak and stupid, is incredibly beautiful. It shows God's wisdom to the cosmos. So imagine a war-torn area. Imagine years and years of dreadful fighting, of tanks, of bloodshed, of guns, and and it finishes, and the soldiers leave. They all head back home. The mourners are in desolation and pain. They've experienced such hardship, wrecked their lives. And the soldiers leave, but the builders come in. They come and start constructing and rebuilding, and making the place new again, making it better, repairing it. And after that first month or so, the first apartment block is finished, where there was bloodshed, where there was desolation. is this new, beautiful building. It's a picture of what will be. A picture of hope. Well, so in the church... God proudly displays his beautiful, stunning work of art to the angels and the evil powers in the heavenly realms. Verse 10. The manifold, their word, means sort of multicolored, multifaceted, beautiful, and glorious plan that is the church. That's his masterpiece. That's his great work. Holding it up proudly. As the rulers and the authorities look in on the history of the universe, what they see is this rich, diverse community that God is gathering together in Jesus. All over the earth, little local churches, a place where war has gone, a place where peace reigns. And as He shows it off, they look in in utter awe, spectacular wisdom. They look in on us this morning gathering together, and they tremble because they see the astounding power of the gospel at work, reuniting a broken world, rebuilding broken lives, dealing with sin. The local church is the hope of the world. Church matters. Striking, isn't it? Because people sometimes say, well, can I be a Christian And not go to church. And I kind of want to say, well, there isn't really a category for that in the New Testament as far as I see it. And yet more than that, why would you want that? Why would you not want to be a part of this plan? Our faith is corporate. We're together, heirs, members, sharers. We're a family, a body, a temple, a household. We must train ourselves to think less and less of me and my faith but actually us together. Corporate. Together we are in Christ. And it's striking actually because our culture can be very down on church, particularly in sort of Christian circles. It can be quite trendy to, to say, well I love Jesus but I hate the church. And of course many of us have had bad experiences of church. Many of us will have bad experiences of church but I'm not sure we can just do away with it as a plan. I think we're missing out on Ephesians 3. Whether we like it or not, whether we're good at it or not, the church is God's plan for a watching world. And of course we rethink and we can contextualise how we do church and how we're relevant, perhaps, how we reach people. But just because we've done it badly in the past, it doesn't mean we can reinvent how we're going to reach the world. Doesn't mean we can rip up God's plan and get on with our own. No, no, the church is central. There's lots of opportunities for application here. I'd love, if you're in a home group, to think through some of these things through this week. But it, it says things about parachurch organizations, so kind of agencies and, and mission groups, that kind of thing, that they're not the church. They're vital but they're not local church. It has things to say about Christian unions. It has things to say about the priority that we ought to have as a family of God, as church together. It has lots of things to say about the importance of unity, and that's where Paul will go for the rest of the letter. If God has made unity amongst you, then please don't destroy it. Please don't undo the work of the gospel. Unity is vital. But he says, we are privileged this side of the cross. We know the mystery of the church that past generations longed to know. The secret is out. And what do we do with that? Well, second point, we look ahead. The task of the church so that future generations will know. Let me read those verses again to us. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. So Paul says the secret is out there. The mystery has been revealed. And because of that, verse 12, we can approach God with freedom and confidence. And so he does that. He prays for them. Don't, don't worry about my sufferings. Verse 13, my being in prison, don't be discouraged, that's for your glory. My task leads to suffering, but it's worth it, because you hear the gospel. And so from his prison cell, he gets down on his knees and he humbly prays. Notice again, as we saw back in chapter 1, it's a Trinitarian prayer. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He prays to the Father for a strengthening through the Spirit, Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. And the three things he prays for for them, he prays for power and for love and maturity. Power, love, maturity. So power, verse 16. Out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's, It's a power so that Christ may dwell in us in his people. And we say, but I thought he did that already. When, when we trusted Christ, didn't he come and live in me by his spirit? Why is Paul praying for that for them? Perhaps it's helpful to think of it more in a kind of being at home type way, that he might be more at home living in you. So it's exciting at Maldon Road. We've got a number of engaged couples Exciting times. We've got wedding days on the horizon. Imagine that after the honeymoon they decide to move into his place. Ah. And he's lived there for a while. He's really lived there. It's a genuine bachelor pad. He's he's made his mark. He's settled. And then she arrives. And of course things have to change. Now she arrives. Out goes the enormous telly. Out goes the Xbox. Out goes the reliance on toasted sandwiches as being a, a suitable meal three times a day. Out goes the piles of pizza boxes. And in comes pot plants. <laughs> and air fresheners and soft furnishings and curtains and laundry bin. And so things have to change. Well, so Christ, by his Spirit, comes to live within us, take up his residence in us, and where we were, uninhabitable. So now he comes to live, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Where he is increasingly welcome, where he increasingly calls the shots, where he sets the direction, where he shapes us and our priorities. He prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Going back in chapter 1, he was praying there as well for his first prayer in the letter, a prayer for power. And we said there that the power that he prayed for, the power that he speaks of, was the power that raised Jesus from the dead, living in us. And we said too that it was a city full of power. Ephesus was extraordinary. There was the... the enormous Temple of Artemis, there were various magical occult groups it was a city of power and so what they need to hear is that you've got nothing to fear this power that has raised Jesus from the dead the God of the world, setting his plan in motion, lives in you And this power that raises Jesus from the dead will enable Jesus to dwell in their hearts, to be at home. But it's more than that, isn't it, this power. It's verse 18 as well. Another aspect of the power is they may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So this power is that they might grasp God's love for them. Power, love. That they might know this love that surpasses knowledge. Paul loves knowledge. He sees knowledge as crucial. So it's an interesting phrase that means it surpasses knowledge. But it's that we might know the extent of the love of God, which our minds can't quite fathom surpasses knowledge again do they know the love of Christ yes they do we've seen that already but this is a prayer for more knowing more of what they have in Christ knowing more of his love for them and how big is this love of God it is enormous it is wise and long and high and deep It is wider and longer and higher and deeper than our brains can get around. And the commentators wrestle. Why does he use these phrases? Why wide and long and high and deep? And Paul, what are you getting at? So some say it's a a swipe at the kind of Ephesian power thing again. It's magic. Those were the four dimensions apparently used in sort of magical texts. Jesus' love is greater than Ephesian magic. magic. Maybe it's God's loving wisdom back in Job, which we looked at a little while ago at Magdalene Road. His wisdom is described as higher than the heavens, deeper than the depths, longer than the earth, wider than the sea. I just take it he's, he's wanting us to know how enormous God's love is, how boundless, how encompassing. It is huge. Do you know that in Christ, God loves you? Isn't that astounding? It might not sound very British. Not particularly kind of stiff upper lip, all this talk of emotion. We start feeling a bit uncomfortable and look for the door. But in Christ, he loves you. Whoever you are whatever your background, whatever you've done. And when we feel we've blown it again, and God just can't love us because that was one sin too many or one sin too big, we can know that we've not blown it because he loves us in Christ. And when we feel that life has turned out just not the way we expected, well, that must mean that God's had his doubts about us. He's changed his mind about us. No, 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 he loves you because of Christ. And some of us will struggle with that. We will struggle because we feel unlovable. We will struggle because of the way in which we're wired. We will struggle with the language. We will struggle with past experiences. But he loves you because of Christ. It strikes me that certain parts of the church more broadly will struggle with that kind of language too, that kind of idea. So some swing too far the other way. But that means that we react against it. Maybe we overemphasise knowledge or doctrine or facts, and so our experience lags behind the truth that we know. We know love in theory, but just not in practice. Have a listen to... um, a pastor, author, theologian called Don Carson. I found this very striking. He says, because some wings of the church have appealed to experience over against revelation or have talked glibly about ill-defined spirituality that is fundamentally divorced from the gospel, some of us have overreacted and begin to view all mention of experience as suspicious at best, perverse at worst. This overreaction must cease. The scriptures themselves demand that we allow more place for experience than that. You see, it's so easy to swing too far back the other way that it comes just about what we know. And at times it will be difficult. Our feelings are fickle. Truth is important. At times it'll be a battle to know love in that way, to trust him in that. And so I guess at those times we look at the evidence and we say, thank you for your love. We're going to take the Lord's Supper shortly, bread and wine together. A clear picture of how much God loves us, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. If you're here as a Christian this morning, if you're in Christ, as you take bread and wine, know that he loves you. He died for you. Power, love, and what does it lead to? It leads to maturity. Verse 19 that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And I take it that what Paul means by that is to be spiritually mature, to be all that God wants you to be. He will talk about that corporately next week. 4 verse 13, becoming mature, attained to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I think he's talking more here as, as individuals perhaps. Isn't it astounding? Don't miss this. Do you want to be spiritually mature? Then until you receive power from God to grasp how much Christ loves you, you never will be. Isn't that striking? Paul assumes that we can't ever be truly mature unless we've grasped Christ's love for us. Of course, we just think it's about how well we know our Bibles. How well we answer questions in Bible studies. Perhaps it's the way in which people serve, the way in which they've suffered, the way in which they've lived. Paul says, you need to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He prays that we might know how much Jesus loves us. Power to grasp Christ's love so that they will be mature. And remember why it matters? Why does it matter? It matters because it's through the church that God's plan of salvation is proclaimed to the cosmos. Mature Christians reconcile together around the gospel, speaking God's wisdom to the world. God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence.